Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now strap on those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, with my spouse. That's me, Jeremy. I'm president of Anaquim. Jeremy is president of Wistar Group Property Management here in Omaha, Nebraska. And if you haven't been to Bootstrappers before, we review concepts and ideas from successful entrepreneurs in all arenas and then try to bring those concepts down to our industry of investment property management. So today we're lucky enough to have a wonderful guest with us, Jerry Reimer. And Jerry is a developer here in the Omaha area, and he's developed many, I mean, all kinds of You've seen his work. Yeah, You've so definitely seen it. From Urban Village, where he developed some uh, older buildings and made them gentrified and absolutely gorgeous, to new developments like 1010 on the Lake and uh, the bungalows at Prairie Queen. Am I saying that right? At Prairie Queen, which is your newest project, right? Mm-hmm. And Jerry has one of the most interesting career trajectories of anybody I know, um, starting out in a consulting and then moving on to entrepreneurship. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about how he chose to make those career transitions. And then also just talk about how does someone even get into developing brand new properties? Uh, because I, I mean, that's, a con- that's nothing that Jeremy and I have ever done before. Um, and one of the and other- that's not because we're smarter. <laughs> it's because we don't know how to do it. Right? Well, and then <laughs> one of the other things that I love about Jerry's work is everything that he's developing right now is very intentional, and it's it, they're properties that people genuinely want to live in. And so we're going to talk about some design strategies. So it is going to be a jam-packed episode. And with that, we want to welcome you, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you for the kind introduction. Oh, yeah. No, we're excited. So we just want to talk to you about how the heck you, first of all, I mean, ended up in Omaha Mm -hmm. and how you go from being a consultant at Deloitte to saying, you know what, I'm going to throw this cushy job out the window and just Throw caution to the wind and start my own business. Was Deloitte cushy? Yeah, I'm not sure the people at Deloitte would consider their jobs cushy. It's a lot of hours, is my understanding. Yeah. But, so, right. so yeah. anyway, with that, just I think tell I was us a looking bit. for a cushy job is why I left Deloitte. So yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit about your path. Yeah, so um, I'm actually from Omaha. I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, my father was a drywaller, and when I was, they, he really didn't have a retirement. So when I was eight years old, uh, the story goes they inherited five hundred dollars, and uh, they were either going to buy a new dining room set or they were going to invest it. And apparently, my mother refused to put the money in the bank because then it'd be with all the other money. She left the check in the cabinet for weeks and months, and my father would get angry that somebody's going to come steal the money. And so eventually, she used that five hundred dollars to buy a four-unit apartment building. Um, at the time, as you know, as an eight-year-old, I did not know there was such a thing as a property management industry. Um, I just became, you know, part of the family. Uh, my mother was the leasing agent. My dad was the maintenance man. I painted, cleaned, pulled, you know, weeds in the yard, and so I just thought that's what owners did. I didn't really know there was a great company like Wistar or anything like that <laughs> even available. So that's how you got 
That's your first introduction. Did your mom and dad, did they buy other properties following that fourplex? Yeah. Uh, so they, over the years, uh, they have 20 units today. They bought that first fourplex in 1975. They still own it. Um, I believe they're actually next to some properties you guys may own here locally. Oh, really? You, you may manage here locally. But they bought one, and over a few years later, they bought another one. And again, as a young person growing up, I thought that owning apartments and investing seemed like a better deal than being a drywaller. And... Uh, so I asked them why they didn't buy more properties. And they're like, hey, you don't understand. It takes a lot of down payment money. We just don't have that kind of money. And so I really started to aspire of how could I save more money? How could I save money faster than a normal person? And somewhere I had a lawn service as a kid. I mowed lots of lawns. And one of my uh, uh, lawn mowing customers one day asked what I wanted to do. And I told her that I wanted to study international business. Uh, somewhere along the lines, I had realized that if I could get sent abroad, oftentimes the companies will pay for your housing, give you a stipend. Mm. And at the time, there was also some tax advantages, uh, like the first 70000 of my my income was not taxable when I lived abroad in the past. And so uh, long story short, I ended up uh, pursuing a path to try to work in Japan because the yen was very strong. Mm -hmm. I like to say I was a migrant worker, but instead, of, <laughs> but instead of chasing the dollar, I chased the yen and I literally worked in Tokyo, would save my paycheck. The company was paying for my housing. The company was giving me a hundred dollars a day spending money and I would send my money back to Omaha and I would buy a duplex and a fourplex. And at the time my parents would manage it and fix it and take care of it. And they got frustrated they're like you're just buying us work so you know That's we've sick. known each other for a while but that part of our story is almost identical like i did the same thing i lived overseas well i yep. lived in mexico and what do you do with your money when you're in mexico i mean there's literally nothing left to spend it on mm -hmm. if you're if yeah. you're an expat so you send your money back to the united states and you put it into properties yeah so, yeah, so anybody that's looking into getting into real estate, just go get a job in another country. And did you know Japanese <laughs> trick. before you went? Yeah, um, I thought so. <laughs> it's a really I was, I was lying so, to myself. No, but how did you learn it? So one thing I do not like about American school system is that the language, uh, the, the language courses, um, it's really bad. You don't ever leave high school mm -hmm. speaking Spanish or French. Mm -hmm. Japanese, though... And Nobody the, even teaches it yeah, here locally even, that yeah. I know of. That I, I can't had, be true, but I had studied a little bit of Japanese language at, at University of Nebraska Omaha. Okay, I had took uh, an intensive language program over the summer, and by no means was. Uh, well-versed in Japanese. Um, the most effective thing I did was, so ultimately I got a scholarship from the Japanese Ministry of Education while I was in undergrad to study in Japan. And so I went to Japan initially for a year. It ultimately got extended to a year and a half, but getting a Japanese girlfriend was the most effective way for me to learn oh, Japanese. Oh, right, right. Because yeah, you can say, you, you learn how to say please. I remember. Please. Oh, stop, stop. I, I actually remember the first time I had to practice asking her how to you know, go out for to have a drink and so she then said yes but then we couldn't have a conversation <laughs> after that so it wasn't that effective but it was the, it was the stepping stones to a big long because you ended sure. up leaving with the language right I did and I, you the thing about learning a language anybody that wants to know is you have to mess up a million times like the, the faster you make your mistakes the sooner you learn the language yeah. that's probably applies to a lot of stuff but it, when, sure. I, so when I, I learned Spanish I just wasn't afraid to make look like an idiot because the girls like that. That um, we all have kids, and our you know our kids kind of dabble in entre entrepreneurism here and there. Uh, but I think that that's an interesting guiding principle 
learn another language if you want to be an investment yeah. property owner because i mean i still think well, it applies today i, I, to some I think it does too and perhaps it applies to me i think applies in the following way one of my core values for my family and also for my company is to be open to possibilities mm -hmm. and i think anyone that goes abroad is inherently open right. to possibilities and i do think to be a successful entrepreneur to take risk and to develop properties or even to buy own and invest there is an element that a personality type has to be open to possibilities Absolutely. perhaps Absolutely. So. Very cool. So then you're in Japan, and then what happens? Yeah, so I, uh, I studied in Japan. I came home from undergrad, graduated, and my first job out of uh, school was with Honda Research and Development. It was in Marysville, Ohio. Uh, they had just started the R&D Center. Uh, there were 40 Japanese and about 20 American, young Americans that were uh, educated in Japan oh, cool. and we all spoke Japanese our bosses all spoke Japanese this computer systems were online in Japan and I used to think I was perhaps on Star Trek because I literally the R&D Center was in the middle of a cornfield so you would leave America go into the building put on your Japanese uniform computers were online they'd smoke in the cafeteria rice oh, miso soup in that's the cafeteria crazy. and at night you'd go back out and it's like beam me home Scotty I'm back in America that's cool and so I did that for three and a half years and then I got I went to, uh, during that time, I, I lived in Marysville, which was a small town. Most of the young people would have chosen to live in Columbus or the suburb Dublin. Uh, but I chose Marysville because I could afford to buy a beat up cheap uh, duplex. And so mm. on nights and weekends, I would uh, tear out the lath and plaster and uh, attempt to remodel the one side and ultimately got it done, rented it out. Um, I then ultimately rented, I remodeled the side I was in. I remember I put a bunch of plastic up and partitioned off the bedroom and gutted the rest of the place. So ultimately I was able to uh, profit enough on that building to uh, sell it and have enough money to go to grad school. So three and a half years in, I quit my job. My father thought that was a terrible decision. He's like, you've got a great job, you, you get holidays, you work inside, there's air conditioning. Because <laughs> right, yeah. he was used to working out in the right. heat or the cold. And I'm like, yeah, dad, I think I, I'll be okay. And so ultimately went to graduate school and upon completing graduate school, I at had- At Thunderbird. Yep, at Thunderbird, which is an international business school. And coming, I had good job in offers. In Arizona. Yep, in Arizona. Um, when I came out of grad school, I had job offers from Intel, uh, General Motors, Cargill, and a company called EDS, Electronic Data Systems. It was the uh, company that Ross Perot had started. Mm -hmm. It was owned by General Motors at that time. Uh, but the censure for me was if I went to work for EDS, they would send me back to Tokyo to work. And you wanted and to I go wanted, back. And I wanted that expat job so that I could save more money. I was on a very convoluted path to get to real estate. For some reason, yeah. I, you know, I was like, I need to save money. I need down payment money. At the time, I didn't realize that I could perhaps, you know, solicit investors, raise money, do some different things, create value. Uh, so I took a long path. But don't you think working in corporate America gave you a skill set that you no. wouldn't have gotten had you gone straight to real estate and done it on your own? Are you, yeah. Uh, are you glad that you kind of took that convoluted path? A absolutely. I think um, it's been one of the reasons we have been able to grow. I still consider ourselves a pretty small business. Um, uh, 
10 years ago when I finally kind of got out of corporate America for good. I had uh, 80 units at that time. We're now up to 1,200 units, uh, which you know by industry standards would be considered very, very small. Um, but the growth that we've been able to experience in systems, processes, mm -hmm. team, things that we are successfully putting in place now, much of that ex experience came from my corporate experience. So and when you, sorry, but when you were at Honda, you got, at the time, wasn't it TQM or TQI, Total Quality Improvement, mm -hmm. and uh, and then oh, the logistics system, what was it? it just was in time Just delivery. in time. Um, so layered on top of that, at least when I was in the industry, I did, I did international mm -hmm. logistics. We had uh, ISO. Did you guys do ISO? Sure. So you had written documents. And that's one thing, I, and that's what I kind of want to encourage our listeners and viewers to understand, is that the corporate world is a perfect opportunity to learn how processes and procedures being written down mm -hmm. can actually make your company better. Sure. And actually, without it, your company can never get to a point where you can really probably even sell it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, so I think another advantage is, you know, one of the things I learned as a small business person is sometimes it's hard to go put all those systems and processes in place because you don't necessarily have enough scale when you only have four, 10, 20, even 80 units. And that's where using, you know, a company such as yours where you can offer the benefit of those uh, systems and processes and I can just go plug in with my 80 units. Um, you know, maybe once I get to 1,200, 10,000, I can build some of my own system or my own documentation, but um, I do think one of the keys to success was we learned how to buy into those subject matter experts. Awesome. Well, thank you. We are here with Jerry Reimer. This is Bootstrappers. So, and if you're listening to us on the radio show, um, let's tell them where those are because you've driven by it and you've seen it. Um, so Leavenworth, over there by the interstate, there's, how many units do you have right there at the... Yeah, so within a six block radius of Midtown Crossing in the Midtown area of Omaha, yeah. we have about 690 units. It's those old buildings that were dilapidated, they turned them around, then you've got 1010 on the lake, that's out west. 192nd and Dodge Street, there's yeah. approximately 200 units there, and then we're in process of developing, uh, a, it's a 650 unit master plan in Papillion, uh, right by the Prairie Queen Reservoir, uh, we call that bungalows on the lake. So that's Jerry. Reimer. And so uh, when we before we left for break, we were talking about how um, Jerry developed his real estate empire the way many of us have in the industry, where he just saved money, bought properties, uh, made them beautiful, and then rented them out. I can't believe Jerry called it a, an empire. I I'm calling it an empire. As she <laughs> called it empire, I was thinking house of cards. <laughs> I was too. I was fun. So, so I mean, Jeremy, that's our story too. We had corporate jobs, and on the weekends, we, you know, get our paint clothes on and fix everything up ourselves and flip houses on the the weekends. And some of them would become rentals. But one of the things you've been able to do is progress out of that kind of lifestyle because it's a grind and it's definitely a lifestyle into developing unbelievable properties and getting investors to work with you. Can you tell us how you made that switch? Yeah, I, I mean, to some degree, it was just a lot of luck. Um, you know, I do remember, I think it was the year 2007 or so, um, my wife and I both had full-time jobs. We had young children, and like you guys, we were painting, cleaning, leasing, managing our own units. And I think that year we uh, turned 26 units, so about one every other weekend. And that was a important turning point. One day my wife came to me and said, Jerry, I support your dream, but I'm no longer going to live in it. So <laughs> oh, I, do, I do, I quit. Brilliant. I do not do this I quit anymore. your damn dream. <laughs> yes. 
Your dream is yours. So that caused me to hire my uh, first uh, weekend employee. So I hired a, a guy to work with me to help paint and clean the units. And, um, you know, the really fortuitous time for me came from a couple of different ways. Um, one, I uh, when I got out of corporate America, I transitioned to another entrepreneurial's uh, firm, a guy named Corey Weedle. He had done GNCs, Complete Nutrition's, um, and he was just... Uh, you know, an entrepreneurial through and through, yes. and that was a great adjustment to see. It, it was almost shocking to me that level of enthusiasm and entrepreneurialism and quickness compared to the corporate pace that I had been accustomed to. So, getting that jolt ended up, be, I think, actually being a critical step to get me out of the corporate mentality and into an entrepreneurial mentality. So, just to clarify, you worked for Jerry or for Corey, or you just met him and you were just talking? No, I to actually him. went to work for Corey for okay, a couple, couple of years. Wow. Um, maybe it was a couple of years, one year or two. Yeah. Or so, I, I don't remember at this point, but it was a great learning opportunity, a great transition for me. And um, anyway, from there, I, uh, I had. 80 units at that time, and I had built uh, a 15-unit building from scratch and a 12-unit building from scratch while working my day job, you know, at Deloitte or something Did on the weekends. Sleep? I mean, Damn. not much. Um, and you had little kids. Too. Yes, yeah. So I literally remember and this was the day. Some of the subcontractors back then would have still been using fax. You know, corporate America would have been using email. So I'd be up at five o'clock in the oh, morning, no. faxing yeah. all the subcontractors, oh do gosh. this, here's the Your schedule, orders. and so forth. And then you know, go to my day job. Then at night, I'd come back home and do that. So anyway, there was a turning point for me uh, fortuitously in 2000s, kind of seven, eight. Um, a commercial real estate broker introduced me to my urban uh, village partner, Scott. Yeah. And um, I, I remember I, I really wasn't looking for a partner. I wasn't looking for an investor. Uh, my parents had taught me that it wasn't good to have partners or investors. Mm -hmm. It didn't work out. Very much, you know, mom and pop, old school. You got to do everything yourself. Nobody's going to do it as good as you can do it. You can't trust other people sure. to give, you know, that quality. Good Midwestern values. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, we're kind of. a long way. We're, we're kind of like that. We're kind of more the mom and pop. We don't have a lot. We don't have any investors yeah. in some of our companies. Yeah. And it's just kind of a bootstrapping approach. But. but but, but this yeah. is a new, this is the entry into yeah. being a whole able to new world. It, it gave me a different world because right. um, ultimately I was introduced to Scott. Um, I think six months went by. We kind of hung out. We didn't. We kind of didn't. You know, decide to do anything. So you were hanging out as friends. Uh, acquaintances, okay, right. Okay. I mean, we got introduced. I was showing him what I, you know, what I do. Um, showing him how I, you know, had some success, where I failed. I was doing an eight-unit building in Midtown, which ultimately became the urban village, urban village model at the time. And um, anyway, one day he's so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, this is mostly for Omaha listeners. But um, so you had and you had already invested in that neighborhood with out mm -hmm. having the assurance that you'd be doing the rest of the neighborhood? Yep, at 38th and Pacific near Field Club, okay. uh, Country Club Golf Course. Yeah. I bought a dilapidated building at a foreclosure sale, an eight-unit building for $50,000, won it on the court step, you know, courtroom oh, yeah. steps, and um, didn't know what I was getting into. And, and for people who are in the Omaha area, that was kind of a rough part of town Oof. at the time. Yeah. Um, and what Jerry has been able to do with that neighborhood since then is develop take a bunch of houses in the same area and develop them all nicely so that the whole neighborhood kind of act as a microcosm of 
Uh, I don't know. It was a build them and they will come yeah. kind of approach and, because was, there was no reason to believe. Yeah. But I talked to you back then the and time. I remember you were like, but the interstate is right here yeah. and people can so, get everywhere around the city. So you're very strategic yeah, about yeah. choosing that neighborhood. We were. Um, and again, I will give Scott a lot of credit for that. He had come from Denver. He had seen other urban markets mm-hmm. turn around. And, um, you know, my mother had really taught us a a policy, if you will, or a core value, we wouldn't own any apartments that we wouldn't live in ourselves. We wouldn't put anything into apartment we wouldn't put in our own house. So when I went into Midtown that first time, I just built it out like I would want to live in it myself. At the time, we looked around the area and there's great jobs. There's Fortune 500 companies, you know, there's Kiwit, there's Brookshire, there's um, uh, Mutual of Omaha, there's UNMC. And so we sat there and it's like, is the neighborhood the problem or is the product the problem? Mm, and we just thought that there was enough depreciated product that, the, in fact, it wasn't a quote, bad neighborhood. I do think Ooh. sometimes culturally, Americans may associate the quality of real estate product and label a neighborhood. And again, I was like, this isn't a bad neighborhood. These aren't bad people. You know, there's great jobs. And so we built a product, eight units, like we'd want to live in it. And they rented quickly. Ultimately, that is what Scott saw. And he's like, let's go do more of that. And I'm like, we can go do more of it, but I don't want to go do slum landlord. I don't want to go put lipstick on the pig. We're going to go in there and gut these things and new HVAC, you know, new insulation, windows, tuck pointing, and really, you know, hold them to our standard. And ultimately, there was a huge pent up market for that that Mm -hmm. we didn't appreciate was there but quickly we built into it and that's really how we got the 690 units in that uh, area we were very conscientious to keep them within a six block radius of midtown crossing the reason midtown crossing for anyone not from the omaha area is a brand new well it was at the time brand new development with uh beautiful beautiful condos apartments and all the amenities that you could want, restaurants, movie theater, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it was a $350 million mixed-use development back, you know, in the (laughs) time. So, uh... I want to go back to one thing that you said, though, Jerry. You said that you showed Scott the mistakes you had made on the first building. What were those mistakes, and what were you showing, you know, reflecting upon? You know, some, I mean, I I don't, I, I guess... You know, one of the things as an entrepreneur, I think that is important and for anyone, you know, we're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it really, to me, doesn't matter that we make mistakes. It's the fact that we just keep persevering, we adjust. No one's perfect, no one's Mm -hmm. gonna have the perfect playbook. And sometimes I see people are afraid to take action because they're afraid they won't get it right. Right. I don't get anything right the first time. But we don't have to stay wrong for very long, right? Right. Let's just get market feedback. Let's learn learn and keep going. Yeah, it's like people are searching for uh, their talent, and they would identify their talent as being able to do something the first time. Mm -hmm. But even Beethoven, Mm -hmm. you know, who... (laughs) If you guys don't know who Beethoven is, <laughs> Beethoven was even, uh, you know, he, he he had to learn. He had to learn how to do it. And then, of course, he took off and he was very talented at it. But had he quit because he wasn't good at playing the piano at the front end, we'd not know who Beethoven well, is. Well, my thing about making mistakes, too, is that if you are committed to a process, like I'm an obsessive journal writer, mm-hmm. so I'm committed to the reflection process and then reiterating and you know, pivoting if something's not working, apologizing when I screw up. But I think if you're committed to a specific process and you're committed to your principles, ultimately you'll succeed. 
uh, even though when you're in the middle of a real big mess up, it doesn't feel that way. You know, something that occurs to me is, I think it's a Henry Ford quote, the man who aims at nothing will hit it with amazing accuracy. And so again, I will give Scott a lot of credit for our success at Urban Village. I remember at one point um, we'd kind of danced, are we going to do anything or not? And again, I wasn't actively looking for a partner or an investor, um, but I was also thinking small. And ultimately he said, you know, hey, are we going to do anything? And I'm like, hey, we can't go do a duplex or a fourplex. It won't feed two families, which really represented my limited thinking, mm. shooting for a pretty small target. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, hey, listen, we can, I can bring more money to the table than that. We have to go talk to you know, these you know, professional service folks, family office folks. And um, ultimately, um, you know, he did help bring more money to the table. And this is where we went and shot for initially uh, about 300 units. And the reason we chose 300 units was we were trying to copy models that already worked. So out in a suburb, you might have a 20-acre development or a 15-acre development with about 300 units on it. And a maintenance man would jump in his uh, you know, golf cart or a leasing agent in the golf cart, and they'd drive to the back 15 acres and do a showing or do a work order. Well, in our case, by limiting us to a six-block radius, we could have our maintenance men, leasing folks jump in the car and be to any one of our properties in three minutes. So as we went from eight units to 10 to 20 to 50 to 100, we were starting to get the scale that a large complex would have, even though it didn't look like we had an apartment complex. And because we were gutting them and remodeling them, we could use the same furnaces, the same air conditioners, the same appliance package, uh, same color scheme, decorating scheme. So we ultimately were able to create the kind of the effectiveness of a large suburban portfolio within the missing middle. Oh, that's so cool. And I I definitely want to talk to you more about those design elements, but I do think that's one thing that separates your thought process from others in the industry is you are very deliberate about what you do. Are there any other things about Urban Village where you were taking properties that were dilapidated and fixing them up that were a big part of your overall design strategy or systemic approach towards development? Some of it, I think, went back to the corporate America experience and how do we get repayability? How do we get scalability? How do we have hot swaps? Repayability. What's that? Repayability. Is that what you said? Um, Maybe not. I don't know what's a hot swap. Well, for example, uh, in the computer world, when like at EDS, if a computer in an office went down, they would have a brand new one ready to go and have you back up and running with a hot swap in four hours. So I, I learned that, hey, if your air conditioner goes down and we had a brand new one sitting on the shelf, can we go swap it out mm. and fix you and have you back up and running? So it's an example of a service level. And so, again, as we started to cater to a higher end uh, customer and so forth, we were really, for a small business, I like to say R&D stands for rip off and duplicate. So I, w- I was, you know, at Honda, it was research and development. Right. In Jerry's world, it's rip off and duplicate. That looks like a good idea to steal. Right. And so, so again, how could I take some of that corporate experience and some of the great lessons I learned from those and incorporate it back into, frankly, what started off as a mom and pop operation as far as property management or even development or, you know, our small apartment business. Yeah, that, oh, cor- that corporate background, that's what I love about it. I want to ask a quick question. It's kind of a yes or no. Uh, do you journal? I, I intermittently do. Okay. I'll do it, and then I'll fall off, and then I'll do it again. We'll, we'll say yes. I mean, I think that's the fourth person we've asked, and so far all of them. Yeah, yeah we have a lot of writers that come on yeah, the they, show. Yeah, 
So this is Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim. I'm here with my spouse, Jeremy Aspen, president of Wistar Group. We're talking to Jerry Reimer, who is president of Urban Waters and Bungalows on the Lake at Prairie Queen. We're here with Jerry Reimer. And uh, Jerry is an amazing developer in the area. And I love how Jerry designs his latest community especially, which is Bungalows on the Lake at Prairie Queen. And I remember years ago when you were conceiving this idea, uh, we were at your house on the lake and you were looking at the designs. And the I old was, boat. I was fascinated <laughs> because you, for me, it, it seemed like a brand new concept of how to design multifamily living. And I, as I was talking to you to get ready for the show, you called it the missing middle. I don't even know at the time that it was known as that when you were developing it. You were really on the forefront of the idea, weren't you? Yeah. Well, let's talk about what is the missing yeah. middle yeah. first. Yeah, so um, I actually think uh, a guy named Dan with Optico's uh, design out of Berkeley, California, has uh, coined the term missing middle. Um, missing middle was really... Uh, product, a multifamily product that would be a duplex, fourplex, sixplex, eightplex. Um, perhaps it was product that we would all know before the typical garden style apartment buildings, before the advent of the interstate system, where we really in the you know, probably late 60s, early 70s started using the bigger complexes and so forth. And so you would typically find missing middle in an urban uh, type environment. And so um, when we started developing in Midtown, I don't really, we weren't really a developer. We were buying old dilapidated, you know, duplexes, fourplexes, and eightplexes. And as we would remodel them, I didn't realize it, but we were in fact assembling a portfolio of now I think what is referred to as the missing middle. Um, it was also missing middle was what my parents had bought when they first started, the fourplex. Again, I probably was coming at this from perhaps a little bit of a scarcity mentality, don't have enough money, don't have enough down payment, so can I afford a duplex? Can I afford a fourplex? How do I get started? And so that was my original attraction to the missing middle. Ultimately, in Midtown, after we developed for a number of years uh, the Urban Village product, frankly, I was a little exhausted from redeveloping in the urban core. It's a lot more difficult mm -hmm. than doing, you know, suburban developments out in the middle of a cornfield. So I used to joke a little bit that. I took a vacation and went out and built 200 units on 192nd and Dodge. That's 1010 10 on, 10 10 on the lake. And hey, why'd you quit doing the urban stuff and go out to the suburbs? And it was like to rest. <laughs> it was well, just. Well, it's a little bit more predictable. Well, it's tell predictable. Us why. It's just that much easier. Um, there's, you know, it, it's just. You, you don't have to be as smart. You right? don't. I mean, uh, you don't. It's easy. <laughs> I mean, it's not easy. I know what you're saying. But relatively speaking, you know, there tend, you know, the zoning tends to be in place. The master plans mm -hmm. tend to be in place. There's a lot less, you know, stakeholders, you know, neighbors, different groups that are, you know, getting involved. Not a lot and of. So and not a lot of farmers. Ten ten on the lake is more of a traditional yeah. apartment complex, right? Absolutely. And so what happened there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you saw the, the things that really worked in the urban core and the things that really bugged you about the new development mm -hmm. and kind of took those irritations and created a third type of development, which is yeah bungalows at Prairie Queen. Yes, yeah, so I wanted the, you know, there are some advantages of developing in the suburbs. It is repeatable, it is sustainable in the sense that from a, you can find the next piece of land and so forth. But I also found it a little bit boring, um, there were some things that I really value about, you know, the missing middle, the neighborhood feel. It's, so, it's, it's sterile. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And so I kind of thought to myself, 
could I create a new model for uh, apartment complexes in the suburbs? And to be honest, where this actually came from was I was studying um, the first building code apparently ever for the apartment industry was a tuberculosis window. So back in the 1800s in New York City, there was a tuberculosis outbreak. And so they issued an RFP and said, we need to come up with this new kind of design instead of these you know, boxcar units. And ultimately, what was developed was what they call a dumbbell building. I realized that I own dumbbell buildings in in Midtown. And I thought we were only copying and pasting apartments since the advent of the computers. But I'm like, wait a minute, if we are copying and pasting apartments in the 1800s from New York to the prairie, that was designed in New York City with constraints that were exclusive to New York City. But yet by copying and pasting it into the prairie of Nebraska, we copied and pasted those design constraints. And and when we were at your lake, you were, lo- you were taking pictures of houses in um, an area of town, Fair, Fair Acres, acres Fair Acres here in Omaha, which are these beautiful old um, 1920s mansions. Um, and you were saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this footprint and make it into a fourplex. And we're going to create an environment that looks like Fair Acres, but it's an apartment. And it was just blew my mind. And that's kind of what you did at uh, Bungalows, correct? This is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy Aspen. This is Gwen, and we're speaking with Jerry Reimer. He's the president of Urban Waters here in town. Yeah. Yes, it is. So, you know, there's times where I've looked at, you know, large homes in, you know, Omaha or other areas, and you're like, wow, you know, 10 families could live in that house. Right. And so one of my thoughts were, could we develop a, an apartment, quote, complex that, in, that if people drove through, they thought they were driving through a neighborhood instead of, hey, I I live in that apartment building it's like wow your mom lives in that beautiful home and you decide if you want to tell them that well there's four other tenants in it or right. something so you know i don't think we achieve perfection by any means but um our our parking lots were designed to look like streets which i think we did a phenomenal job on the buildings are in fact uh you know they I, I, one of my young, my youngest child's 12. One of his friends came over the other day. We were in that development. He's like, wow, these are cool houses. Now, he's a 12-year-old, right? But I'm like, hey, he knows how to make yeah. De- Jerry happy. <laughs> and, and one of the elements of the of the construction is that you want you didn't want any common area interior space because it's really expensive uh, to maintain it always yeah. looks like crap so yeah. you or beds on top of each other right? yeah, yeah bedrooms on top of each other what are some of the yeah. other elements that are non-negotiable for you yeah so um so for example out at 1010 and i think this is pretty common in suburban apartments you may have you know 75 to 85 percent of the overall uh, structure is common space, non-rentable square footage, which, you know, to some degree isn't good for the environment. You know, we're, you know, kind of wasting space there. So in Prairie Queen, we designed it that 100% of the space is uh, rentable square feet, which also means they all have uh, common doors, private doors. So we didn't necessarily plan this related to the virus, but now our tenants don't have to Mm. touch somebody else's doorknob. They don't have to walk by and cough somebody in the hallway. Oh, what a selling Um, point. Just another thing that I'm a little bit unusual on here. (laughs) When I lived in Japan, in the 80s and 90s, it was very common to have bidets, and the Japanese have mastered the technology with their bidets. It's not like the European kind. So we actually put Japanese bidets in all of our apartment units. Yeah. And so when there was a toilet paper shortage, we never ran oh out. Oh, my gosh. Ahead of the game. That's crazy. It's like you have a crystal ball. Because, and, and if you've not seen uh, Jerry's bidets... <laughs> 
Which by now you should have a brand. They're Toto's because they're bays, all by the over way. the place. But they're they're a high tech piece. Some of our friends do have they break some a lot? Actually, knock on wood, we haven't had very many maintenance issues. And that issues. just fascinates me that those things haven't broken. They're very precise. <laughs> they're very <laughs> very precise. <laughs> They nail it. <laughs> but no, one of the things, you know, the design is important. And I did really study and think, you know, one of the advantages that I have had. <laughs> okay, way too much on the bidets, right? Sorry. Um, one of the advantages that I have had, you know, I was the maintenance guy. I answered the calls, you know, the good and the bad. And so as we've tried to develop, we've tried to develop in a manner that would, re, you know, would be peaceful for the investors peaceful for the property management employees and the residents the best we can. So um, one of the things Jeremy had referenced earlier, we do make an attempt, um, we, we, we get this right about 80% of the time, but in our bungalows on the lake design, we've made an attempt not to stack bedrooms. And so there's some common practices in the industry that, oh, you need this for scale, you need this to be cost effective. And we've really challenged some of those uh, assumptions and I think we've still managed to have a competitive yield to cost for our investors but yet created a better product for the residents and hopefully a better product for the employees too. One of the other things I love about your development out there is that I hate the sea of parking in a traditional ah, apartment same here. building Man. and um, the way that you design the parking it doesn't feel like you're at a sea of a sea parking lot which I just destroys the soul mm -hmm. so tell us more about how you design yeah. the parking so and the green space because there are rules with this yeah. too. so we have uh, one garage for each unit um, our garages are set up on an alley system and then again we did design the parking lots to look like streets so uh, the residents do technically park in the street which actually is a little bit of an education process because sometimes in the suburbs we don't associate right. parking in the streets as a good thing it's much more common in an urban core and so um, we have had to educate that hey it's by design and the other thing parking in the street does is it actually slows the traffic down mm. um, in some of our large apartment complexes you know you've got a 20 foot 24 foot oh. wide strip of concrete and cars drive way too fast mm. through the parking lots and then you know there's children and things and so by parking on the streets, it makes it a little tighter. You, we've also then put you know 10 foot uh, medians so that you have nice trees growing. Um, one last thing that is a benefit that I hadn't anticipated by having the street parking, if you will, um, we have way more windows in all these units than a typical apartment. Because the building might be a fourplex or a fiveplex, there's often three exterior sides to each apartment unit. So you get windows and natural light on three sides. So you can now look out your window and just see your car right out quote, in the street, it's really our parking lot. Unlike a large apartment complex, you go walking down these massive hallways, you have windows on one side of your unit, it doesn't face the parking lot. So it ends up, again, being much homier, much more neighborhoodish. And having all those windows also probably improves the rentability of them because people like sunlight. And I've lived in several apartments where sunlight is so hard to find. And yeah, so that probably yeah, it, helps I, them rent more easily. I think so. It certainly makes it feel more homey. Uh, another thing that we've done and this may be just a little bit corny but um, our kitchen sinks fundamentally have a window 
So, mm. you know, it's not uncommon for a house that, you know, you have your kitchen sink and be able to look out a window and see something pretty. Again, apartments don't necessarily do that anymore. It's all this save money, cost effective, yield, and so forth. And so we've really tried to come back with a human scale mm -hmm. and rehumanize the product. I feel like in some cases the apartment industry has gotten too commoditized, too institutionalized, mm -hmm. and we've taken the human out of the equation. So well, as the urban areas are starting to be redeveloped, uh, is it not going to be something that w you're not really left with the option of of using new uh, new uh, material and new designs? You have to kind of take the old, right? Or you have to knock stuff down. Um, the higher density, uh, I guess. The, the, what I'm getting at there is the higher density areas. Um, is that where the cities are going? Are we starting to lose areas to develop um, suburban? Yeah. Uh, projects? Yeah, one of the things that's interesting, um, most people look at the bungalows on the lake and they assume that I have lower density than a typical suburban apartment complex, but we actually have equal or higher density per uh, you know units per acre, or specifically, I think it's also perhaps better to measure rentable square feet per acre. And so um, I actually think we can then uh, leverage the city's infrastructure better, we can right. reduce suburban sprawl. And so, uh, so if people want to learn more about the missing mil middle or look at some cool design elements, do you have any recommendations of where they should go? Yeah, they should definitely go to Opticos. Uh, um, I, I'm not sure if it's Opticos.com or not, but it's Opticos Design. They're in Berkeley, California. He's got a uh, Dan uh, has a new book coming out uh, by coincidence. What's his name? Dan what? Uh, Prolic. He's Dan actually Prolic. from Nebraska by coincidence. No so you guys might want to have him on your show. Yeah. Someday. Okay. Let's yeah, do that. that and, fun. and he's got a new book coming out on the missing middle that's supposed to be out this summer. Oh. Um, and then sure, I you know I'd love anybody here locally to go take a look at bungalows on the on the lake.com and um, there's some nice pictures some videos absolutely. and things absolutely yeah it is a uh, at prairie queen down and is that in la vista it's in uh, papillion papillion and i will also just uh give a plug um mayor black who's the uh, mayor of papillion he loves his city he works hard for his city every single day and uh, we would not have been successful developing this type of project without his leadership vision Awesome. So you is, are, is this the last segment? No. Oh, okay. um, so this is Bootstrappers. I'm Gwen Aspen, your host, uh, president of Anaquim. I'm here with my spouse, Jeremy Aspen, president of Wistar Group. And we are here with Jerry Reimer, who is the founder of um, Urban Waters and uh, the bungalows at Prairie Queen. And we're here continuing our conversation with Jerry Reimer, who is the president of Urban Waters and just is working on the development site, the bungalows at Prairie Queen. And Jerry, you're one of those people that I really think has made a shift in your mindset over over the years I've known you. And uh, it, it, when you talk about it from the very beginning, you've changed your mindset. So how did you go from like a scarcity mindset to a growth mindset? Yeah, it's fascinating. So, and actually, for our listeners, can you describe the difference? Okay, because yeah, that's probably where we should start. Well, oh, me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. what's the difference? It's, yeah. <laughs> I think a scarcity mindset is focused on what you don't want, and perhaps a scarcity mindset is focused on what you don't have. Where an mm. abundance mindset would be just to be authentic about what you want and not be afraid to declare to the universe, this is what I want, and to go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. Except, I suppose, the risk, which is what 
you know, we're, we're, when we have a scarcity mindset, that's what we're trying to avoid, but you don't get very far by avoiding. Well, I think, you know, the, the very word avoid, so you're trying to avoid, I don't want. And I think that's really, uh, there's a great book called Ted, The Empowerment Dynamic, and yeah. in it they talk about, uh, you know, the victim mentality versus the creator mentality, and there's a choice point. Do I focus on what I want, which is really in the creator role, or do I focus on what I don't want, which can often be associated with, you know, quote, this victim role. Um, again, if you read the book Ted, you'll understand what I mean there. So what, what was the, the story like? Was there a key moment where you said, I am not going to think this way anymore, and you made a shift, or was it more leaning into the shift? Yeah, it was definitely leaning into the shift. Um, I mentioned earlier when I had shifted out of corporate America, I was blessed to work for Corey Weedle, hardcore entrepreneur. Um, while working for him, I noticed that he was in a group called EO, Entrepreneur Organization, and he was surrounding himself with other entrepreneurs. And um, ultimately now I'm in EO, and it's been a great impact. But as I started watching Corey and um, successful people um, in general, I started, uh, I'm a kind of a patterns guy, and I'm like, is there a pattern here? And I started to notice two things. I noticed that a lot of successful people that maybe started with very little and got to a lot have personal assistants and professional coaches. And I thought, wow, someday maybe I could get a personal coach. And so actually it was my first personal coach who really introduced me to the concept of a scarcity mindset versus abundance and so forth. And I um, became more aware of trust. And interestingly enough, having a personal assistant, uh, before, you know, growing up with my folks, it was like, we can do everything, we don't need anyone else. What well, was it? We didn't trust anyone else. And so actually by getting a personal assistant, I had to start to learn to trust the person to do things for me and to receive things. And I think I've shared with you in the past, um, my first personal coach one time asked me, she said, Jerry, are you selfish? I said, well, I don't consider myself selfish. I, I wouldn't be proud of being selfish. And she said, well, I just want you to know you're a selfish SOB. Because every time- <laughs> If I've said oh, it once. Wow. Right. She said, you know, every time you do a job that someone on your team could have done, you are depriving them of pleasing you, you're depriving them of personal growth, you're depriving them of a career opportunity, so you're actually being selfish. She was making an extreme statement, but it really helped me to shift. And so, uh, again, you know, I, I'm a big believer, you have to give to get. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we go create generative action, generate, make things happen, create opportunities, and then, you know, I think there are people that have a skill for just making things happen, and I am one of those people. And then in that ripple effect, it creates jobs it creates opportunities, learning environments, different things for those people around you. And it helps you enjoy your life yeah. better yeah, because you're doing more of, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but you're doing more of the things that you'd prefer to do. Well, it goes Is back to, right? yeah, you start to do what you want. Yeah. Well, I want to do this. And oftentimes things I don't want to do are things I'm not very good at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is somebody in the universe that is fantastic at it, much better than I am. And so I just need to share with them and trust them. Mm -hmm. And it's a win-win for both of us. So I just want to go back to that moment where you decided to get that personal coach, because mm -hmm. if you're already in a scarcity mindset, mm -hmm. spending the money on a personal coach is one hell of a leap, I agree. right? So how did you decide I'm going to spend this money on a personal coach? So it actually happened slight. So um, I was in EO and as part of this entrepreneur organization, you go on an annual retreat with your forum mates. And we had hired the coach to train us for a couple of days for our learning experience on this retreat. 
and I was just so impressed with with her. And I actually remember that day um, when we returned. I think we were coming back from Cancun. I actually uh, went and upgraded from uh, coach mm -hmm. to first class. And my story was I couldn't afford first class. My story was it was too expensive. And I'm like, that is a scarcity mentality. I need to adopt a mentality that I'll just make more money. The world's abundant. And when I focused the first 40 years of my life on what I didn't have and focused on cutting expenses and keeping things small, I kept things small. And when I started focusing on, well, I'll just make more money, I'll just grow it, I'll just create more opportunities, I want these things, I want those opportunities, um, I really think the man who aims at nothing will hit it with amazing accuracy. Which was Zig Ziglar. Oh, is that who it was? Yeah. Okay. And uh, anyway, so I... So that really was your turning point. You was. went on the retreat, you had this amazing coaching experience, and you just said, never again. Yeah, and I continued to, you know, pay you know $250 an hour or some pretty enormous amount of money for coaching um, but again I saw guys you know like Corey Weedle or Farhan Khan and these guys are successful guys and I just started to say it's R&D again I'm gonna go rip off and duplicate I don't know why they're doing it I don't know why it's working but I'm just gonna model behaviors of people that are more successful than I am and learn by default Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. I'm Jeremy Aspen, this is Gwen Aspen, and we're with Jerry Reimer. He's of urban, well, urban village, urban waters. waters. And bungalows on the lake at Prairie Queen. So if you were to give advice, because we're wrapping up the show here, to a young entrepreneur right now, your younger self, what kind of advice would you give that person? I would, I would give them the advice to mentor those around them. Okay, so start giving yeah, first. Yeah, I do believe that. I think oftentimes people coach on what they actually need to learn themselves. Mm -hmm. And I do believe you give to get. And the other thing is when you focus on others versus focusing on yourself, I think it's just a happier place to be. It's better energy. The universe is expansive and just good things happen. Oh my gosh. Well, we are so grateful to have yeah, thanks Jerry a million, Jerry. Appreciate you coming on our down. show today. So many nuggets of information. I'm Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim. I'm here with my spouse, Jeremy That's Aspen, <laughs> with Star Group Property Management. And this is Bootstrappers. Thank you for coming to our episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next week. See you next week. This has been Bootstrappers a unique presentation designed to help you better understand what makes the world turn. Contact Gwen or Jeremy Aspen at hosts at bootstrapper.club. Join us next time on News Talk 1290 KOIL at our website or download the podcast.